the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Greetings from Chicago. I'm John Cass, syndicated columnist for the Chicago Tribune, filling in for Dan Proft on The Dan Proft Show. So we're just weeks before the most important election in our lifetimes, and I want you to think about how you'd feel if the entire country were run the Chicago way, where the Democratic machine rules, where dissent is shouted down, the credo of Chicago being, we don't want nobody, nobody sent, where taxpayers are squeezed to pay for the political promises of politicians to payrollers, a city of violence and tribal politics, a place where everyone without political clout is muscled. This is the place of shut up and take it. And now Joe Biden, the Democrat running for president, is running the Chicago way. And he has the gall to tell voters that they don't deserve to know about his plans to commit violence upon the Supreme Court and pack it with liberals if he's elected and the Democrats take the Senate. Sir, I've got to ask you about packing the courts. And I know that sure. you said yesterday you yeah. aren't going to answer the question until after the election. Uh, but this is the number one thing that I've been asked about from viewers uh, in the past couple of days. Well, you've been asked by the viewers who are probably Republicans who don't want me continuing to talk about what they're doing to the court right now. Well, sir, don't the voters deserve to know? No, where they don't. Deserve, I'm not going to play his game. Journalists are protecting him, carrying his water as the left continues its assault on language and on the court, which has been stable at nine members for 150 years. The Associated Press says what the Democrats are trying to do is depoliticize the court, and the AP tells us that critics refer to it as packing the court. Really? When Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried it in the 1930s, he was a Democrat, and it was called court packing. But now it's called depoliticizing? That's Newspeak, right out of 1984, the novel by George Orwell. And now all the worm tongues on that side, like our own senator from Illinois, Richard Wormtongue, is at it. Shut up and take it, America. So what's it like to be me, John Cass, the last print conservative in Chicago? I'm an endangered species, hunted, my habitat shrinking. But I keep writing my column in the Tribune, and I'm a member of its editorial board, and I keep writing four times a week, even though the George Soros mob tried to take me out. I'm also the greatest, I'm also co-host of the greatest podcast in the universe. Yeah, it's called The Chicago Way. 
You can find us on iTunes or wherever free podcasts are found. It comes from that movie. And Obama himself, blessed be his name, quoted from it once. You know, you know how it goes, the gangster movie. He grabs a knife, you grab a gun, and that's how we roll. The big story this week is Supreme Court nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings before the Senate. And today we'll talk about Barrett and the anti-Catholic bigotry facing this outstanding jurist with lawyer and scholar Mary Hall Fiorito. And I get to ask her about Richard Wormtongue. It's Columbus Day, isn't it? Can we still mention it after the iconic class of the left fueled by the ravings of Howard Zinn tore down the statue? So of all the great of the great explorers in city after city, statues to honor Columbus that were paid for by the pennies of hardworking Italian immigrants. Mary Graybar, resident fellow at the Hamilton Institute and an expert on Howard Zinn, will talk about we go to work on Columbus Day, but the left that destroyed the holiday doesn't have to. And Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor to the Federalist magazine, wrote a piece the other day that cuts to the heart of what's going on in the country about our elites and the elite journalists who serve as their palace guardians. And my good friend, the great Charles Lipson, professor emeritus at the University of Chicago, historian, political scientist, writer, on that political Gordian knot protecting the secrets of Obamagate, the takedown of a president, and why it's being ignored. So how do, how do you become a conservative in deep blue Chicago? I was eight years old, working at my father's grocery store on the south side. It wasn't child labor exploitation. I guess you could call it Greek daycare, but in reality... It was a university for me where I learned to read people. If you know anything about Chicago, our family supermarket was in a neighborhood that tourists don't see, a working-class neighborhood on 55th Street in California, a neighborhood of Lithuanians, Poles, Irish, Italians, Latinos, the backbone then of the democratic machine. It was a neighborhood of churches and taverns. And one day, the city health inspectors came. My father was terrified. My uncle was terrified. All they did was write down little notes in their clipboards. They didn't say anything. A big Irish guy and a little Italian guy. They said nothing until they noticed the stakes. Those are beautiful stakes, Greek, they said to my father. And quickly quietly, he turned to me, I was eight years old, and whispered to me in Greek to fill up the shopping bag full of steaks. Yemiseto kevuluseto, he said. And those were ribeye steaks, two to a flat package. And you know how many steaks an eight-year-old boy can fit into a shopping bag? More than 25. I filled them and said nothing. I looked over at my dad once, and he just gave me a look and a short through his teeth and kept filling. Thanks, Greek, they said, one patting me on the head. They smiled. My uncle smiled. My father smiled. I didn't smile. 
We never, ever ate red steaks at home. We ate only the older brown steaks that we couldn't sell. But we were trying to survive as a business, and the government inspectors got the red one. They could ruin us if they wanted. Instead, they got the steaks. And it was then when I saw how the government hammer is really used that I learned about the Chicago way. If Joe Biden gets in and the Senate turns blue and they don't have to tell you anything about packing the court until after the election because you don't deserve it and the worm tongues celebrate their victory and the federal bureaucrats of the deep administrative state raise a glass of champagne, just like those city inspectors that got the stakes when I was a kid. And they'll smile to themselves, and they'll all congratulate themselves, and that's when you'll know the Chicago way, too. It's not that government regulation is wrong. It's how people, human beings, use the power of government once they have it. It's not in a textbook. It's in human relations. And people use power the way they want to use power once they get that power. I've wondered about this for quite some time. I see the debilitating power, the effects of power in Chicago. I see how people are hushed up and silenced. I see teachers who want to teach their students and be in school and they can't because they're afraid of the union. I see people wanting to dissent when they go to work, you know, maybe offer an opinion, but they can't because they're afraid. If they speak, they know what will happen. They'll be isolated, canceled, because that's how it works now. And all this is going on as the backdrop of the 2020 presidential elections happening in just a few weeks. I want you to think about it, what the United States would be like governing the Chicago way. This is John Cass filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. We'll be right back. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Hey, everybody, this is John Cass, Chicago Tribune columnist, editorial board member, conservative in Chicago, last of my breed, next to Dan Proft, sitting here on The Dan Proft Show, filling in while he's golfing and I'm thinking about, you know what, can I just take a break for a second? Because, you know, take a break from all that serious stuff. Because remember Andrew Breitbart, when he was alive, he would say 
this, the Breitbart Directive or whatever it's called, theorem, that politics lives downstream from culture. And you know what our culture is now? Watching TV, crying on the couch, stuffing fats in front of our face, into our faces, crying and crying. There's nothing like crying in space. And that's the big show. At least my wife's watching it. And my son's girlfriends. And her, my sisters-in-law. And uh, many other people. And men. Men wanting to sit down on the couch, watch uh, This Is Us in Space and cry. Stuff chips into your mouth. Grab the tissues and blubber like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't get it, but... That's the thing. We're addicted to it. We're addicted to watching TV, eating fats, and crying. And that makes me want to cry. I grew up on Star Trek, and Captain Kirk didn't cry until, I guess, Spock died for the sixth time or something. Bonanza, that was a cowboy show when I was a little boy. A strong father and strong sons. And you know what? They didn't cry. I don't think they cried. I don't think... Little Joe cried or Haas cried. But this thing, this us, this is us in space, it's actually called Away. It's on Netflix with Hillary Swank. Is a different cat altogether. I don't watch it, but, you know, a lot of people do. And it fits the need, the cultural need, to cry. The interesting thing is, of course, if you look at it as you're walking past the television, on the way to the fridge for a snack, which is what I do, uh, you notice something. They never cry in zero gravity. I mean, they float around in zero gravity, but they don't cry in zero gravity because then it would have to be real uh, zero gravity, not, you know, a cable. And so they, you know, I wanted to see tears floating in the space, but it doesn't happen. That would be positively Homeric. Now, the show, I said, is titled Away, about a mom who leaves her paralyzed husband and teenage daughter at home so she could get to Mars. And then there's, let's see, there's a a Russian scientist there, too, and his daughter hates his guts, and he also cries, and he distills vodka in space, and the Chinese astronaut cries, and the botanist from England cries, and I remember on the way to get some, you know, leftover Tuscan grilled chicken. I did a great job with the brick, on, you know, wrapped in aluminum foil on the top of the chicken, pressed it down, spatchcocked, perfect for a late-night snack. And he says, as I'm just, you know, walking back with chicken and a little lemon on a plate, he says, I happen to be the most, the preeminent botanist in all the world. And then he starts crying, too. So they're all crying. We used to have another pastime besides, you know, sitting on the couch and crying in America. 
You might remember it. It was called comedy. It involved strange creatures telling jokes. But these jokes could offend somebody, so comedy was dragged off to the guillotine, put out of its misery, its stupid, demented head rolling down the dusty street. You remember, just as the first crying seeds floated down from space, perhaps they took the stairway from from heaven down to our land, to our earth, and began to sprout in the culture, the, the crying seeds began to grow, germinating, to become someday the great trees throwing shade on comedians. The great philosopher, Robert Plant, had this to say. Sir, I've got to ask you about packing the courts. And I know that sure. you said yesterday you aren't going to answer the question. So All right, we're starting over there, okay? And the Robert, the philosopher Robert Plant had this to say. Nobody remembers laughter. Nobody remembers it. We don't do it. We don't laugh. You can't tell jokes. Nobody. If you tell jokes, somebody's going to be embarrassed. Somebody's going to be outraged. They don't want jokes on college and college campuses. Comedians avoid going there. You've heard about it. Because the kids want something, comedy so thoroughly scrubbed, of barbs and aggression, that even if the most hypersensitive weirdo on campus mistakenly wanders into a performance, the words he would hear would fall on him like soft rain, writes Caitlin Flanagan of The Atlantic. We're all into feelings now. Just sit on the couch. This is us. This is us in space. Some other cry show. Cry and cry and cry and think of Breitbart and politics swimming downstream from culture, and it's inundated with our tears. Why do we want to do that? I can't tell you. I think it's something about we got rid of toxic masculinity, and now we have the other thing. I don't know. But ask yourself, has anyone from young student to geezer ever tried to cancel anyone who tried to help us cry on the couch? Watching TV while cramming various sugary or salty fats into our faces? No. Because we're all about feelings now. Reason doesn't cry. Reason isn't feelings. Reason can be cruel. History tells us that cultures give themselves to feelings. And often these are the cultures that bring horrific cruelty to others. But we're so invested in feelings now and our constitutional right to cry on the couch, watching TV, that we can't even think about it. Comedy won't return, but reason might make a comeback, only when we're desperate enough. But in the meantime, you know what we've got? We've got our tissues. We've got our chips. We've got our ice cream. We've got more tissues. We've got our couch, and we've got feelings. Because America loves to cry. How did it happen? You just got to ask yourself, why ask me? I don't know the answer. 
This is John Kess filling in for Dan Prof on the Dan Prof Show. And we'll be right back. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. So it's Columbus Day. Uh, we got rid of the statues in Chicago and everywhere else, or mo- almost every other place. Statues torn down by the angry left and by. Craven mayors. And then what happened? Now it's Columbus Day. There's no uh, parade that I can see. And I'm still at work. It's a holiday. I'm at work. You're at work. I wonder if the left goes to work. Or is that part of the victory, too? They got rid of the statue, got rid of Columbus. They get to take the day off, and we go to work. Um, There's somebody I want to talk to about this. And the roots of the anti-Columbus hatred, the anti-Western hatred in our schools. And she is Mary Graybar, author, writer, scholar. Happy Columbus Day. How do I have a Columbus Day holiday when the left that destroyed it are taking the day off, but I'm working and I can't see a statue or a parade? Is that fair? (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, they're they're taking the day off. They've already done their destruction this summer. Usually, uh, as I wrote in my book, it's it's a ritual to deface the Columbus statues around his holiday. Uh, it has been that way for re- in recent years, but this year they got a head start. Uh, used the excuse of the death of George Floyd and went after everything in June and July. What does it tell us about a country where our elected officials cave to that sort of leftist, uh, Marxist pressure? Well, it's very scary. I mean, uh, you know, we're now having decisions made by mobs. And furthermore, these mobs are the most ignorant, uh, indoctrinated, you know, young people. Uh, we have ever seen. They've been raised on this absolutely falsified communist propaganda that Howard Zinn wrote in 1980 and that has been used in schools ever since then. They know oftentimes no other history. And the way Zinn presents Columbus and our history ever since is as a long string of abuses against peaceful, loving uh, Native Americans and other groups. And uh, these these mobs of young people have just been riled up in uh, schools, indoctrinated with this false history. And, um, and sadly and frighteningly, these officials are, you know, doing their bidding and, as in Chicago, taking down... Um, statues in the middle of the night with no discussion. The um, what is the, the? I've seen I've seen the uh, rage on the faces of these people, and I've seen it um, in Twitter where they work as a, a faceless mob, and mm-hmm. in media. But I, 
I try to explain to my wife, uh, who is Sicilian, oh, mm-hmm. I try to explain to her that um, this is not really about Columbus. This is about destroying the symbol to destroy any our connection with the West. And sooner or later, they'll come after me because I'm just, I guess they'll get rid of all Greeks in the United <laughs> States because they have to, right? But what is it? Is this really about... Um, Columbus, or is it about an attack on the West? It's about an attack on the West, and I think this summer has demonstrated it. I mean, it, I mean, who could have predicted, um, you know, the, the destruction and the taking down of statues, beginning with the Confederates, then moving on to Columbus, then going willy-nilly to anything that has anything to do with American history, including abolitionists, um, you know, General Grant, uh, black union soldiers. I mean, these mobs are, um, you know, unthinking, uncomprehending. And so Columbus, the attacks on Columbus have always been about um, the attacks on the West and on the United States. Um, it, but it, it became physically and visually apparent this summer. We'll talk about uh, we have, when yeah. we come back. I'm sorry, Mary. When we come back on Dan Proft's show, we'll talk more with Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. We'll be right back. Back. This is John Cass filling in for Dan Croft, and we're talking to Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America, and her story this week in Just the News, Canceling Columbus, How It Started Years Ago and Escalated in 2020. So what do we, how do we make sense of everything we've seen, the rage, the violence, the iconoclasts? Um, tearing down the statues, tearing down anything that resembles the past. What is this about, Mary? This is about decades of indoctrination in schools. I, I, you know, when I was still allowed to teach, I taught at a number of colleges in Georgia when I lived there, most recently at Emory University. And I, I saw this coming on in the 1990s, um, and it's been growing incrementally. And... These students that have now grown up that are working in tech companies like Google and Facebook have been uh, fed a a bunch of lies about our history. It's intended to make them angry at our country, to hate their very own country. And, you know, Howard Zinn was a prime uh, influence in that. 
You know, his book has broken records in terms of sales. It's used more and more widely every year in classrooms, uh, down to kindergarten. Uh, you know, there are various versions of it, and there are history uh, lessons that are downloadable from the Zen Education Project. And so this is, you know, what our young people have been indoctrinated with. And um, as President Trump said at the, uh, you know, the, the conference, the White House Conference on American History, this has to stop. Um, you know, there is no other way to stop it that I can see. I mean, definitely these people out there who are rioting uh, and destroying the statues need to be punished. They need to be arrested, uh, put in jail, not just released, and um, held accountable for what they're doing uh, against, you know, property, government property, and private property. And then we need to really, really take Howard Zinn's book out of classrooms. And uh, the reason I wrote my book was to provide a rebuttal, a well-documented rebuttal of how Howard Zinn uh, distorts what other people have written and said, how he plagiarizes, how he leaves out essential information and quoting, how he uses sources like propaganda and a book uh, for high school students that's just a screed. Um, so, you know, to start educating the pe people, young people especially, about the truth. Well, we do have now another one. It's called the 1619 Project, <laughs> discredited by historians, but still promoted by the New York Times. It's like that's Howard Zinn, too, isn't it, in your schools? Yes, and that's uh, my next book that will be coming out next year. Yeah, I'm working on that. And actually, I, you know, I think that uh, Howard Zinn laid the groundwork for that. I don't think we could have had the 1619 Project without Howard Zinn first. Um, and there are many ways that he did that, which I will outline in my book that will be published by Ragnary again next year. Great. Well, um, what do you, what do you um, advise parents and taxpayers? Because they, don't, they, they see this, young, this younger generation, they don't even know why. It's not like eating goldfish in the 1930s and doing <laughs> the Charleston. And it's not really like ha just having sex and listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, which is... Uh, when I was a teenager, it is um, something else again. So how do they, what advice do you give them to uh, deal in dealing with their school boards? I think that they need to object to the fact that People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn is not just another perspective as he said it was and as his advocates say it was. It is falsified history. It would not pass the muster of any kind of a committee that overlooks the selection of textbooks. I'm hoping that people will use my book as a weapon against those who are saying, well, Howard Zinn is just providing a different perspective and he's talking about these oppressed people that, you know, have been overlooked in history. That is not true. He even uses as one of his sources a Holocaust denier. I mean, it would not pass muster with any textbook committee if you look at it objectively and to point out to school boards 
these are the errors, this is how he twists things around, this is how he plagiarizes, these are things he does that a freshman in college would not get away with, um, and this is being used as a textbook in our classes. So today we're, um, what's going on with Columbus Day? There's no parade, at least in Chicago. There's no statues in Chicago, where I'm ca- ca- calling you from. I don't know in the pl- where you are. Do you have a Columbus Day parade? Are there st- can you even talk? Can I even talk about Columbus without being canceled by some angry, uh, some angry young, I don't know, white woman who just adopted a pit bull? I mean, how, how do I? <laughs> yeah, you've got them pegged. Um, well, here in Clinton, New York, which is near Utica, um, I think all the celebrations have been canceled because of a you know communist chinese virus called covid mm, um yeah. but uh you know utica has a substantial italian uh community and there is a statue of columbus on memorial parkway and it's been defaced twice with um the word killer spray painted in red and at the base and as you may know from your you know, uh, the experience of your wife's uh, family, uh, Italian-Americans from the so- you know southern Italy were discriminated against. In the 1920s, they were targeted by the Ku Klux Klan. I know all that story, and I hear it again and again, and I think I'm going to even talk about it some more, or maybe write about it some more. Mary Graybar, author of Canceling Columbus, How It Started Years Ago and Escalated in 2020, and her book, Debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Go out and buy it, people, because I think it's worth it. Thanks for being here, Mary, on the Dan well, Crouch th- Show. Thank you very much, and happy Columbus Day. Great, <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. So I'm glad we talked to Mary Graybar about Columbus and about Howard Zinn and your history and how it's being destroyed right before your eyes, and you don't even know it. Because many of us don't even know our own history. We watch TV. We listen to the radio. Some of us read, but all too often not enough. And one thing you're going to learn, depending on how this election goes, well, you, you may have already learned it. When you see the Columbus statues being torn down, when you see uh, statues of Ulysses S. Grant defaced and torn down, and abolitionists who are against slavery being torn down, and the mobs screaming, and journalists telling you that it really wasn't a riot, it was a peaceful protest, what are you seeing? You see clearly. You see, as Dan Prof says, You know what they want. You see what they want. Now what do you want? And you're going to have to figure that out for yourself in a couple weeks. 
on November 3rd or even before. The destruction of Columbus is about the destruction of the West. And I'm a believer in the West. I'm a believer in men of the West, in writers and thinkers from Aristotle, Plato, and on and on. Hilarious people like Henry Fielding. Sarcastic ones like William Makepeace Thackeray. And I don't even know if we can talk about them anymore. And I don't know if you can talk about our founders. The founders have all been destroyed or besmirched or soiled by this leftist propaganda and the 1619 Project and Howard Zinn. It's like they're trying to take cultural memory away. It's actually not like it. That's actually what they're doing. They're removing. It's a political exercise. They have a scalpel. And they are removing and cutting away from the common memory those things that bound us together. The things that made America a melting pot. A thing like Columbus, a statue for a great explorer. You know why? Because 12 or 13 Sicilians were lynched in New Orleans many years ago. And Columbus was made... Columbus Day was made as a response to that, to include people, to let them know that they were part of the great melting pot, that it wasn't just a white Anglo-Saxon thing. Italians, like my father-in-law, who fought in World War II and was wounded in the invasion of Normandy, and others could join. That's what they're doing. You see what they're doing? You see what they want? Now what do you want? That's all there is to it now. We'll be right back. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. This is John Cass, columnist at the Chicago Tribune, filling in for Dan Proft, who's golfing, I think, or something, right at the moment when the big news is happening. Amy Comey Barrett, Judge Amy Comey Barrett from the Seventh Circuit, the Seventh uh, Circuit Appellate Court in Chicago, is uh, testifying before the Senate Committee on her confirmation to the Supreme Court, and all the worm tongues are busy, like Richard Wormtongue of Illinois and others who are busily trying to deconstruct her politely because they know the election's coming, but they still, they're going to come after her, and tomorrow they'll come after her really hard. On the line with us now is Mary Fiorito, attorney, public speaker, commentator on issues involving the Catholic Church. It is my great pleasure. Hello, happy birthday, Mary. Oh, thank you, John. And I would just say, Hronya Pola, which oh, is how we say it. Many years great. to you. Many years oh, to you. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Every, every ethnic group seems to have a version of that, right? Isn't it like Stolat for the Polish, 100 years? And, yeah, Chindan um, for yeah. the Italians. By the way, yeah. I, I'm told you're Scottish, but I see Fiorito. So how right. does that? Is, my is husband's you, name. 
You yeah. mar- oh, you, oh, really? I married an Italian. Yeah, but my parents, I'm, I'm like you, John. My parents were immigrants. They came here from Scotland in the early 1960s. And, um, you know, it's probably one of the things I think we're going to be talking about today is religious liberty issues. One of the reasons my parents came here was because of the incredible prejudice against Catholics in, Scot- in Scotland, uh, where Christmas was not even a legal holiday until 1954. <laughs> Can you really? No, I do, I, oh, yeah? no, I do not. It was considered papist. It was a papist holiday. I mean, that's what the word Christmas means, right? Christ's Mass. Yes, right. It's a Catholic holiday. And so at my, you know, my parents would talk about their memories of children, as children of, of Christmas, was seeing their dads go to work. And everybody had to get up and go to Mass, you know, really early in the morning because everyone had to go to work, all the, you know, the, the, the men and women who worked. So, um, yeah, so they came to the United States and... I think I'm always so touched when you're writing about your own dad. What a great country they thought this was, and the opportunities that were here. And no one cared, you know, at least on paper, who, what religion you were or who you were. And so we didn't care about uh, our sensitivities. What we wanted was a chance. All right. we wanted was Correct. a chance. And you could say whatever you wanted, and call me not American, and ask me if how many gods do I believe in, or whatever the kids asked me back then. Yeah. But uh, it didn't matter. Because we had a chance right. to be in America and yep. become oh, and, Americans. And, and the opportunities that were available. Right. And, you know, I mean, we lived, I grew up in Austin, in the Austin neighborhood, around North Avenue and Central, and very different neighborhood. But there were most of us, you know, five, six, seven. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of marveling at the way people are just aghast at the fact that Amy Coney Barrett has seven children. That was just like a family. When yeah. it, <laughs> my a, neighborhood, actually, when I was, that was just kind of a normal family. Actually, and it's everyone, a, it was a middle, it was really a medium-sized family. Basically, it yeah, wasn't like exactly. the Dwyers with uh, seventeen and the yep. and the you know other people down the block with with more. You know, yeah. um, one thing that you your parents may have been asked when they were in Scotland dealing with anti-Catholic bigotry was: Were they ever asked, "Have you now, or ever have been an Orthodox Catholic?" That's every time I think about that, John. It just my blood boils. And for those who don't know, that is Senator Richard Wormtongue of Illinois asking uh, Amy Coney Barrett back in yeah. her, during her last hearing. Yeah, he's very angry. It's a very touchy subject for him because, you know, and this is public, so I'm not telling you anything that you couldn't Google yourself, but he's not even permitted to receive communion publicly in his own diocese in Springfield, I think, for the last 12 years. Um, Bishop Paprocki just continued the policy, which the previous bishop had endorsed, that Durbin's support of abortion on demand for all nine months, for any reason, puts him outside of the Christian community. And so until he repents from that, um, he can't receive communion publicly. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing. So I I kind of think when he was asking that, I, I mean, I can't know his mind or his heart, but to my mind, it was getting in a jab at his own bishop, too, right? Because Of course um, he was. Going, yeah. And so, but, you know, poor Amy, I mean, who was just... I mean, such a paragon, and if if she were on the left, everyone would be extolling her virtues, which are multiple. <laughs> In fact, almost, you know, go, go to infinity. And to see the way she is being disparaged and maligned, it, it just it just makes me sick. I watch for about an hour and a half, and then I have to, I have to take little mental breaks <laughs> or I can't. I get too upset. So. Well, the big hits will come. They'll leak it to the media, and they'll right. leak stuff about the uh, the adoptions of the right. children and other dirt if they can I don't even know if they, to me that's not dirt to adopt a right. child out of poverty yeah. and raise them and or create a beautiful school for children of all income backgrounds called Trinity yep. 
which is a religious, you know, Catholic school, but it... it no, it's it, actually it, not, John. It's not oh, denominational. Really? No, it's, Trinity is non-denominational. So it has, obviously, you know, it's, it's one of these great books, classical schools. Of course, you know, reading scripture is part of your, you know, training to, to have a well-rounded mind and education. But no, it's actually, it, it's an independent Christian school, but not attached to any particular denomination. Oh, and I think, you know, I have a number of friends who send their kids, send their kids to the Trinity School in D.C., and I think it's about 50-50, um, you know, some Lutherans, some, you know, evangelical, more conservative evangelical Christians, and then Catholics. So what is the attack that you see coming uh, at the beginning of the hearing, and how do you think it will go? I mean, just from what I watched this morning, they seem to be awfully focused on health care, as if health insurance is going to disappear tomorrow for people if Amy Barrett is nominated. Right. And I'm not aware of any case in the pike for the Supreme Court that's a direct attack on the Affordable Care Act, which is seem, you know, seemingly what they're going after. Every single one of the Democratic senators, including Durbin, who spoke this morning, held up a picture of, you know, one of their constituents who, but for the Affordable Care Act, would have, you know, faced significant medical bills, as if all of this would, would vanish because Amy Coney Barrett was sitting on the Supreme Court. And yeah. I, I was texting with one of my friends who has 10 kids and is, you know, uh, went to Stanford Law, and she's another one of these kind of genius Catholic moms. And she was like, who knew that Amy would have this kind of power, you know, to eliminate everyone's health care in one fell swoop. So that seems The power to of life and death. Right? Yes. Oh, exactly. Well, mm-hmm. and, you know, so, some of them have mentioned, you know, bodily autonomy, which we all know is code for abortion. Um, and I, I think that's really, at the, at the end of the day, that is the issue that they're going to be, that these hearings are going to be about, just well, as it was with Kavanaugh and with, you know, multiple other Republican nominees. We're going to get into the people of praise issue and how the Democrats and their handmaidens in the media in the Democratic media complex, as I call it, much to the uh, fury of my colleagues at the Tribune, will handle it. Mm-hmm. But for right now, um, the idea, just as a lawyer yourself, as a person who deals with the law and the teaching of law, where does it written that a Supreme Court justice must give you the outcome of a legislation before you'll even consider them as a legitimate candidate for the office. Right, yeah. I mean, there's not supposed to be these litmus tests on either side. They're not helpful. Judges are to be completely neutral. And, you know, every case that they're going to hear is going to have a different set of facts attached to it that you can't know in advance. I mean, this is what, this is something Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, often said. A judge should not decide in advance how he or she will rule on a particular matter until it is actually in front of them. And, you know, so I, I just find this very odd. It's, it's not the right line of questioning. You want to know maybe about judicial philosophy. You want to know about the person's background. You know, how, how are their writing skills? You have to be a very precise and accurate writer to, to be a, a justice and, and hand down opinions that people can understand. Um, those kinds of things are all fair game. You know, the person's educational background, um, how they were trained, what their, you know, what was their work experience? Did they teach the law? Did they serve as a, as a judge at a state or federal lower level? Um, these are all things relevant and completely, you know, open for discussion. But, you know, how many times Amy Coney Barrett attends mass uh, every day is not, nor whether or not, you know, she wears ashes on her head on Ash Wednesday, that is not up for discussion. Do you I pray? Mean, have you now or ever have prayed, madam? Oh my, I mean, I look, know. Uh, Kamala Harris is questioning about 
the, the, the lower district court judge, about the Knights of Columbus. Yes. And did you know, sir, before you joined this organization, that it was anti-choice? I mean, I, I just, that people were not up in arms, John, over that question and the similar ones that Durbin asked and, and Diane Feinstein. I, you know, there was an excellent article in, I want to say it was in the New York Times, yesterday from a, a Jewish attorney who said, you know, if you look at the practices of Orthodox Jews, um, they would they would puzzle a lot of people and Jews. But they wouldn't be dare. They wouldn't dare. Oh, they dare. wouldn't dare. Nor to. I mean, would you would you ask a Mormon, for example, about temple garments? Right. That that kind of came up when Mitt Romney was running. Well, we'll you ask know. we'll ask we'll ask Mary Helen Fiorito when we come back to talk about the people of praise, the Roman Catholic Church, the attack on religion from the left. When we come back on the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. And we're back. This is John Cass filling in for Dan Proft on The Dan Proft Show. Our guest is right now is Mary Helen Fiorito wrote a fascinating piece called the, uh, the People of Praise. The People of Praise Deserves Ours. This is a Roman Catholic group, a prayer group, which apparently, in this McCarthyism of the left that we live in now, uh, I'm reminded of that senator, Mary, uh, who said, have you no decency, sir? Mm-hmm. Have you no decency? And now, if you believe in God, if you do the sign of the cross, I guess you can't be a Democrat. And you can't right. be part of their club, and they will yep. demonize you. So, mm-hmm. so tell us about the attacks on the people of praise. Well, the, so the people of praise is a is a Catholic, charismatic, what we would call a lay ecclesial movement. So, a group of people that is largely lay people, which means you know married people or single people, not priests or nuns or what we would call religious. So, um, it is it, it came out of something called the charismatic renewal in the, ni- the very early 1970s, and essentially was formed by a group of people who, having had um, you know, what Protestants would call a real deepening of their personal relationship with Christ, wanted to sort of live and work alongside other people in order to um, you know, know more about God and His will in their lives, in order to serve the community like the early Christians did. They really wanted to you know, sort of live their lives like St. Paul describes it in the early days of Christianity, where people worked together and shared what they had in common and prayed with each other and prayed over each other. And, you know, if, there's, if there was anything I would fault people of praise for is that the name is just, it's just so rooted in the 70s. <laughs> and in the 70s, well, that was very cool, right? It is, but like, it's a reaction. It's not today. That's the only thing, right? You have to explain it. People have to know. It is, right. for those of you who are over 15, might remember, there was something called Vatican II. Okay, right. And a lot of this is a reaction to the great liberalization of the Roman Catholic Church, and as many Roman Catholics, Orthodox Catholics. I'm an Orthodox Greek Christian, so I know what that yeah. means. Um, right. They they wanted to get back to the roots, and so they did. And um, but you know what's amazing? Now she's being criticized for this for this group. Why is this even allowed? Right. Oh, it shouldn't be. I mean, there's actually, 
you know, a, a, a constitutional precedent that, that religious litmus tests and religious questions are completely out of bounds um, for, for candidates for public office. But this, you know, everyone seems to be not too concerned about this. And again, um, you know, I, I people of other faiths, traditions who have different, you know, or, or, or religious practices or gatherings or what have you that may seem sort of strange to people who don't understand them, they should be watching these hearings very carefully as well because, you know, it, it's like what did Dietrich Bonhoeffer say? First they came for, you know, the disabled, but I wasn't disabled, so I didn't say anything. Then they came for, you know, right. the, the, the Jews, but I wasn't a Jew. Um, you know, these are, I mean, they're not even thinly veiled attacks anymore against people of faith and, you know, people of praise rather and, and people who practice particular faith in, in a very kind of rigorous way as, you know, um, Antonin Scalia did. He had nine children. He has a son who's a Catholic priest. How dare um, he? How dare yeah, he? Yeah, you know, he, if you've ever, if you've not seen his son, Father Paul Scalia's homily from his dad's funeral mass, it's well worth Googling and listening to it. And he talked about how his father's faith you know, impacted um, everything he did, and he, and which is why I think he had such a beautiful friendship with Justice Ginsburg. I mean, he he attempted to, as as we try to do as Christians, to see Christ in other people, to see mm-hmm. them as created by God, um, with a unique dignity, and I, he he did he practiced that in his everyday life. But you know, just like if there, this might be a helpful analogy for people who aren't you know familiar with these kind of lay ecclesial movements. If if you want to run the marathon, you just don't get up like the week before and say. I'm going to run the marathon, I'm going to start practicing. Most people, they, they join running clubs, um, they have somebody who might have done it a couple of times who gives them advice and guidance. If you go out on practice runs, or someone who's spotting you as a timer, you know, to make sure that, you know, each mile that you run is, is at a certain pace. And these kinds of organizations and lay movements, and there's many of them in Chicago, I think we have 14 different lay ecclesial movements. We don't have people of praise, but we do have the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which is probably the largest with several thousand people who are members. You, you kind of, you know, get together with people who might be more advanced in, in their Christian life, who might have, you know, one of the things people ask me a lot is like, well, how do you pray? Like, how do you start? You know, and I said, well, on, you know. You know how you start? Pray. You start on your knees in the right. back row of the church or the temple, and you say these words, Kiri Eleison, which yeah. means, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Mm-hmm. Which right, is the... exactly. You start with humility. Right. And so this is what a lot of these movements would do. And so this is where this kind of handmaid, which comes right from Luke's Gospel, where Mary says, I am the handmaid of the Lord. It's just older or more advanced Christian women who help to guide younger Christian women who want to grow in holiness and who want to try and understand and do God's will for their lives. There's nothing nefarious about it. But why are they being, um, ta- why are they being treated? Because you use the handmaid, which is why the left uses the term handmaid, right, to deconstruct these ideas and destroy them. It makes her sound like a freak. That that wouldn't be normal. And I have, you know, one of my closest friends is one of Amy's neighbors, and she was telling me, you know, uh, and her, Amy's older kids babysat for my friend's kids, and she was saying, you know, like, if your dog died, Amy would be the first person to show up at your house with a casserole. Like, they said she is the most kind. She and her husband both, just exemplary neighbors. They keep to themselves. They're not like, uh, since it's Columbus Day, they're not like some Italians say, to show-offs, you know, they're not right. Spa- right. What was that you used to say about what Sis Daly said? Spacones. Um, they're not spacones. Yeah, they don't, they don't act big. Wasn't oh, that yeah. your column about, yeah. about Sis Daly, which I've always remembered, because I yeah. thought that, that's a very Chicagoism, isn't it? We don't you, act big. Try to act big. You don't act big. 
And, um, and you know, and, and speaking of, I, I was just telling this to someone the other day who, a friend who had been present at Sis Daly's funeral, and the priest who was presiding, and imagine with Durbin and Lisa Madigan and Mike Madigan, everybody in those front pews, he said that he and Sis had talked about the number. They had, they had a big family, you know, the Daly family. Yeah. And Sis Daly, I guess, said to him, I'd rather have a child on my lap than a child on my conscience. And um, a priest friend who was there told me the whole church just kind of, he said you could feel the uncomfortableness. <laughs> and, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, I do think that's what, you know, as much as they are prattering about, you know, losing health care and the Affordable Care Act, this hearing is going to be about abortion. Do you and think that, do you very think ugly. that they, when they, do you think it will get ugly as the week continues? I just don't see how it won't. Um, I, I think they will be smart enough not to go after her adopted children and not to go after her Catholic faith. That backfired on them tremendously the last time. We are very close to an election. Um, you know, Mark Curran, who's running against Dick Durbin, he put out a statement to, to over the weekend saying, you know, do not do not shame yourself as you did the last time. And because Richard, Catholic Richard Wormtongue? Richard Wormtongue? Yes. Oh, I mean, that was... It, and it was just the level of mockery, and that's right. what caused, you know, all of my friends and I, we all have, you know, the dogma lives loudly, but then we coffee mugs now. Um, I want I a T-shirt. The, yeah, and a T-shirt, right, exactly. There, there's a whole uh, uh, market of Amy Coney Barrett uh, paraphernalia that sprung up after that. But I do think that woke up some more, um, you know, complacent Catholics and other people of faith say, wait, you know, when people talk about religious liberty being... Uh, in jeopardy, there's actually something to this. We have spoken to Mary Holland Fiorito. I've quoted her before in my column in the Chicago Tribune. It is a great pleasure to have spoken to you again about this. Thanks, oh, thank Mary. You, John. Always, always great to be speaking with a kindred spirit. And also, Kronia Pola. Happy birthday. Thank you. All thank right. you very much, John. Okay. God bye bless bye. you. God bless you. I don't care. The podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. This is John Cass, columnist at the Chicago Tribune, filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. You know, there's a... Orwellian lie that's being told right now by the worm tongues who don't like Amy Coney Barrett. The argument is that in the Republicans are being reckless to install Barrett, and so that justifies court packing. What is court packing? It's adding more than nine justices to the Supreme Court. We've had nine for almost 150 years or more than. Even Ruth Gader Ginsburg said she liked the number nine. But when he's asked about it, has asked about his threats and the Democratic threats to pack the court, you know, let's go over what Joe Biden says. Sir, I've got to ask you about packing the courts. And I know that sure. you said yesterday you yeah. aren't going to answer the question until after the election. Uh, but this is the number one thing that I've been asked about from viewers uh, in the past couple of days. Well, you've been asked by the viewers who are probably Republicans who don't want me continuing to talk about what they're doing to the court right now. 
Well, sir, don't the voters deserve to know no, where No, they don't. Deserve, I'm not going to play his game. You don't deserve to know, everybody. You don't deserve to know because Joe Biden, like a Chicago political boss, tells you you don't deserve to know. But I, I'm sorry, Joe, from Scranton. I want to know. I want to know what you're going to do to the court. Now, the lie that's being told, the conflation by the worm tongues, by Dan Rather, by Ronald Brownstein, by the Associated Press. My friend Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics pointed this out in a tweet. He noticed that uh, that when the left, that the Associated Press deals with the argument court packing, they say what the Democrats are trying to do is depoliticize. And that only Republicans want to talk about court packing. But Democrats talked about it in the 30s when Franklin Delano Roosevelt didn't wanted to do it and ram his agenda through and destroy the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And that's what they're doing now. Now, before we get into Durbin and Richard Wormtongue, as I like to call him now, I want you to remember that this argument that the Republicans are being hypocritical, that's a lie. What happened was, in 2016, Barack Obama wanted to nominate Merrick Garland. And he didn't have the votes in the Senate. And so it was delayed. And I supported delaying Merrick Garland because I wanted the people to decide the issue. I wanted the people to decide the Supreme Court issue. It was front and center in the 2016 campaign. And President Trump was elected president. He put out that list even before the election of conservative justices that he would pick, and he's picked from them. And Democrats were freaking out and screaming about the court and Trump, and and Trump won. So the people spoke then. And then the Republicans increased their majority in 2016 and again increased it in 2018. So it was decided again and again by the people of this country. And even the notorious RBG said Trump didn't stop being president in the third year. It's all in the Constitution, and they followed the Constitution. Of course, I'm being condemned as a hypocrite by the left, but I wouldn't expect otherwise from them. They don't want to deal with the merits of the issue. The merits are the Republicans won, Trump won, as Obama himself, blessed be his name, used to say, elections have consequences. And what we're seeing now, the conflation of all this, is newspeak. The palace guardians and the media, the Washington media establishment, dealing with it, playing that newspeak game. Richard Wormtongue and other senators are playing the, new, the newspeak game. They're trying to change the debate subtly without really being held to account. You, you can see what's happening. They want to ram the court down your throat by adding more justices and making it less legitimate than before. They're, they want to turn it into a political hack job 
legislature. We'll talk more about this when we come back after the break on the Dan Prof Show. Dan Proft Show. I'm watching the uh, Democrats spin this this business of packing the court, not holding Biden to account, not saying, "Sir, you're a Democrat. You're running for the presidency of the United States." Why don't you answer the question? Are you going to pack the court? You know why he doesn't want to? He doesn't want to because he's thinking about doing it. Either he's thinking about doing it or he's trying to placate the hard left that demands it. The same hard left that took down your statues of Christopher Columbus and pushes the 1619 Project in your schools, hates the West and Western civilization, tries to destroy Amy Comey Barrett, that left. So either he's ready to kneel before them, or he's trying to placate them, or he's actually going to do it. What you need is strong answers, clear answers. But when he said that to that reporter that you don't need to know, you don't need to know, you don't deserve to know, well then... Here's uh, Richard Wormtongue of Illinois, Senator of Illinois, on Meet the Press. Senator, the, the lack of answering this question sounds like as if the Democrats are trying to game the results here and just trying to see what happens and that it, in some ways it may be that it comes across as a negotiating tool with trying to maybe convince a handful of Senate Republicans to delay these confirmation hearings. Is that what this is? Is this a negotiating ploy? It is not a negotiating point. We are dealing with the reality. You know what the reality is, Senator Wormtongue? The one who asked Amy Coney Barrett, are you an Orthodox Christian? Or I'm sorry, yes, an Orthodox Catholic. I'm an Orthodox Christian. I would have loved if he asked me that. But I'm not qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. But what is the point is that he doesn't want to answer, and so he's spreading it out, spreading it thin, like too much butter, on too too little butter, on too well, much can, bread. I, I can, Let's hear his response. Well, I can, I, I can tell you that uh, we're getting this question. It's a common question being asked because American people have watched the Republicans pack in the court over the last three and a half years, and they brag about it. They've taken every vacancy and filled it. Did you know that they've sent us, and we have approved only with their votes, I might add, uh, 10 people who have been, been judged unanimously unqualified by the American Bar Association. Do you know how many judicial nominees came from Obama who were judged unanimously unqualified? None. So we are dealing with people on the court, packed into the court, with little or no qualification, uh, who are going to be there for a long time. So it's understandable. The Republicans raised the issue of court packing. No, sir. Democrats raised the issue of court packing. Be honest, at least. Cut the worm tongue business for a second. You hear it also being reinforced by Dan Rather. Remember the great investigative journalist? 
and that uh, he lost his job by copying stuff, you know, in the Kinko's parking lot about Bush, and it wasn't true. Here's Dan Rather's tweet. Can we at least recognize that court packing at all levels of the judiciary has been the Republican playbook for decades, asking for Merrick Garland? Really, Dan? And here's one from Ronald Brownstein. Denying a vote on Merrick Garland for almost a full year while rushing a nominee closer to a presidential election would would not qualify as court packing? Okay, gentlemen, the worm tongue brigade... The difference is what the Republicans and President Trump are trying to do with Amy Comey Barrett is written in the Constitution. It is allowed in the Constitution. There is no limit to the number of justices in the Constitution, yes. But for 150 years, that's how we rolled. And if you add more judges now, justices now, what you're doing is creating a club. You're just turning the You're turning it into a club, like a club that some barbarian would hold and smash you down with it on the Second Amendment, on abortion, on First Amendment, and on and on. The Democrats have have given themselves up to the left. And many Democrats tell me that they used to be Democrats, but they didn't leave the party, but the party left them. And it's true. They went so far left that now they're, thr- you know, that cancel culture business. Just see when it gets into the hands of a 15-member packed Durbin, Durbin, Schumer, Biden, Harris packed court. They're tr- changing the rules in the middle of the game because they're having a temper tantrum that they lost the 2016 election. And they're willing to destroy everything in our country in order to do that. Now, I don't – I know some of you are going to say, well, you're supporting Trump. I, Trump. I don't like him, all right? I don't like his manner. I don't like his barbaric Twitter thumbs. I don't like how he talks. A lot of it bothers me. I think it's too unnecessarily, too antagonistic and vulgar, narcissistic and brutal. Yeah. But I stopped looking for virtue in politics when I was a kid. You hunt for virtue in politics when Clinton, when Bill Clinton can hold the Bible after Monica Lewinsky, when Hillary Clinton can laugh at you and Biden can laugh? Are you serious? Are you grown-ups? You hunt for virtue in politics. You might as well be hunting for purple unicorns that talk. Maybe you could have one in your bedroom. It could talk to you at night and give you a hug. But it doesn't exist in politics. That's not virtue. I'll tell you what is virtue, the justices of the Supreme Court. It's always been the Supreme Court for me, always, 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 to protect the liberties of not just those who want me silenced, but everyone, because that's what we're talking about here. If you add more and more justices to the Supreme Court, all you're doing is turning them into a weapon. Like the kind, you know, like those guys that I told you about that came into the store when I was a kid and asked my dad for the stakes. It's just force. It's not liberty. It's power. It's not freedom. When the worm tongues speak, think about what they're saying. 
and how it affects you. This is John Cass sitting in for Dan Prof. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. When the worm tongues are out spinning, telling you the reason why you don't have statues is because it's your fault. I want you to remember something. It was written by a man who understood human nature and how hate can herd the mob. And he understood how those who would cancel history would use language and symbolism to delegitimize that history before writing it to serve their pursuit of power. And here it is. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. His name was George Orwell, and I think that in the next few weeks, if you haven't read it six times, you should read it seven or eight times and tell your children and your friends to read it too. You're seeing it happen all over. You're seeing it, the the shifting and shape-shifting. You're seeing it in the stories that are coming out. Nathaniel Blake senior contributor to The Federalist, wrote a piece to the, the other day that cuts to the heart of what's going on in this country about our elites and the journalists who serve as their palace guardians, preening about their virtue and mocking the more than 60 million people who voted for Trump. You know, those bitter clingers, the basket of deplorables, and never coming to grips with what they've done to the country. Or to journalism, which is now on its last legs right at the time when it's needed most. We're going to talk to Mr. Blake and also my good friend Charles Lipson, whose understanding of politics is unparalleled, Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago. He talks about the Gordian knot and that Obamagate investigation. He says in a column coming out this week, the Gordian knot here is the unavoidable, unresolvable tension between the proper procedures to investigate crimes and the inherently political character of the crimes being investigated. Remember when the left was ripping Attorney General Barr, screaming, calling him a fascist, junior Hitler, whatever they, nonsense they spit out of the orifices of their mouth. Well, Barr didn't come with the Durham report, did he, before the election? We'll talk to Charlie Lipson about that. And to Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor to The Federalist about the nature of the elites as we get closer and closer to the election and how they'll deal with it if they win and they kick you to the margins of society. This is John Cass from the Chicago Tribune sitting in 
for my good friend Dan Prof on the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Well, we're back. This is John Cass, columnist of the Chicago Tribune, member of its editorial board, filling in for my friend Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. One of the great aspects of my job is that I get to talk to people who are interested in ideas rather than just things. One of the most interesting is Charles Lipson, professor emeritus at the University of Chicago, political scientist, writer, my friend, who's coming out with a new column, I think it might be in real clear, on the Gordian Knot protecting Obamagate's secrets. I grew up learning about Alexander and the Gordian Knot, so I'm interested to hear what Charlie Lipson has to say. Good day, Charles. Hello, John. Good to hear from you. So tell us about the Gordian Knot and Obamagate's secrets. Well, first of all, I think that what happened uh, the targeting of Donald Trump's campaign uh, and his transition and then the early part of his presidency leading into the Mueller probe and so forth was among the worst scandals in American political history. It is a secondary scandal. And, and, and let me just say why. We have a right to free and fair elections. That means that um, the incumbent party can't use all the instruments of government to undermine those elections. We have a right to uh, a peaceful transfer of power. That means the incumbent administration can't try to undermine it. And then we have a right to have our elected officials control the executive branch, the uh, president and vice president are elected, and to have all of that undermined by the politicization of our um, law enforcement and intelligence agencies uh, is a terrible, terrible thing. You can also think it's a terrible thing for Adam Schiff to behave like he did. He's an elected official, and as long as he's acting within his legal remit, um, that's a different thing. You can think it's a politically bad thing, but it's not a challenge to our Constitution itself. Now, what ha- what I'm saying is that all of those activities have been uh, that were, in my opinion, uh, unconstitutional, illegal, and a basic threat to our democracy have been hidden for four years. Why? They've been... They've been slow walked by the agencies that did them, even though those agencies are now under different leadership. The FBI doesn't want to be embarrassed, so all the things that Comey did have not been released easily by um, by Christopher Ray. Uh, the, the political of 
officials at lower levels in the Justice Department and State Department simply hate Trump. So they don't want to release any of this, and they don't want their organizations to be embarrassed, and maybe they don't want to be politically liable at the individual level. So they've all kept everything secret. And then as long as the bumbling Jeff Sessions was nominally the head of the Justice Department, it was actually run by Rod Rosenstein, and Rod Rosenstein basically turned everything over to the Mueller crew, which was just going after uh, President Trump nonstop and not interested in any and, and in uh, of the things that I was talking about, and Mueller uh, so testified to Congress. So all of this has been kept secret for four years. The American public have a right to know, but uh, the point that I'm trying to make in uh, the article that should be coming out probably tomorrow in Real Clear Politics, that is on Tuesday in Real Clear Politics, is that there is a second procedural um, logic that is pulling in the opposite direction. The logic I just described is that the public has a right to know we are citizens in the Democratic Republic, and that's pulling in one direction. Pulling in the other direction is that uh, what's being investigated is a huge white-collar crime. It has political impacts. It may have been done for political reasons. Of course so when you, invest, when you investigate a crime, it's kept secret. That's the point. That's what uh, – and you don't say, oh, we investigated Charles Lipson or John Cass – we're not indicting them, but we think they did some really wrong stuff. And here's what we found out they did. Now, we're not indicting them for it. You cannot do that. Well, Comey that's did. What, Comey did that exactly on Clinton. That's exactly what he did. Yeah. He, he, he should be uh, chemically castrated. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the fact Severe. is, whether he did something illegal, I don't know right. uh, uh, about that. But it was an egregious violation. And... Bill Barr is not going to repeat it. I, I've had now the, we're stuck. Now we're stuck. I've had the pleasure of speaking to interviewing uh, the Attorney General Barr about steakhouses mm-hmm. in Chicago and the movie Key Largo, you know, where oh. Johnny Rocco counts the votes again and again and again until he gets them right. And yeah, uh, that's, how the, that's how the European Union votes. That's how we that's, <laughs> that's how we roll on the Chicago way, baby. We count the votes hey. again and again. But um, I did notice that he said, I said, well, why did you come back? Why did you come back to government? And he said, because I had had seen, he said, I'd seen the Justice Department being turned into a political weapon. It was weaponized. And I just had to. And I thought all the criticism that Barr has received, uh, Charlie, on uh, whether he'd release the Durham report or not. Now, they're not releasing the report, and now the left is uh, overjoyed. I guess guess they... The right is opposing him, but he he is doing something so fundamentally correct. And he he is a legal officer, although he has a political appointment. Right. He is not, and the more, I don't think Durham... I mean, I don't know anything about Durham personally. I don't have any reason to believe that Durham is trying to keep everything secret for political reasons. I think what he's discovered is a bigger and bigger and bigger conspiracy. And as he, uh, as he 
um, investigates each part of it, he doesn't want to re- he doesn't want to indict people that would inform other people who are part of it. And the latest thing that I've just heard about that is we all know now, thanks to the uh, newly released uh, documents out of the uh, that have come out of uh, Ratcliffe, that how much Hillary Clinton was behind all this. But the thing that I've just heard, and it makes perfect sense, is that it is also a crime to turn over to the FBI material that you know to be false in order to get them to investigate people. In other words, I can't call up. I mean, it's the same almost as what what's called swatting, right? Mm-hmm. I know that nothing has happened at John Cass's house, but I want a whole bunch of police to descend on it. So I say, oh, you know, John is doing something there that he, he's got a meth lab there and he's about to move all the product out. You guys have got to get there really quickly. And what and don't, did, don't forget the bevy of yeah. Costa Rican beauties, right? Oh, that are hey, in the, kept in the I garage. There were enough of them, I wouldn't have called. I don't think my, uh, I don't think my wife would uh, allow that. But anyway, yes, I see. But, but I can't just, I mean, it's a crime for me to do that. Well, right. it's the same thing to do that to the FBI. Right. Yes. I mean, if I knew that what I was turning over now, they, these guys, a lot of these guys are lawyers, and what they will say is, well, we didn't know. We we thought it might be right. We, it wasn't our job to investigate. It was the FBI's. But that will depend on what documents exist. When and we come way, back, when we come back, right. Charles, mm-hmm. we're going to take a break. When we come, But when we come back, if you will, hang on after the break, we're going to talk to Charles Lipson about the effects of not – of what the media and some of the even cheerleaders for Trump have screwed up on and about the American people. And if they ignore this or they don't think it's serious, what are the long-term effects on the republic and the individual liberty that we all prize if this thing is allowed to go on unanswered by the media that carried the water for Schiff and the Democrats, and by the intelligence and FBI itself. This is John Cass sitting in for Dan Proft, talking to Charles Lipson of the University of Chicago, and we'll be right back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. As I said, this is John Cass from the Chicago Tribune filling in for Dan Proft, who's golfing. And our friend, Charles Lipson, is on the line. He's writing a fascinating piece called The Gordian Knot Protecting Obama's Secrets, Obamagate Secrets, and I think it all goes back to a Chicago way takedown, Charles and I and other journalists that we speak to on the on email, on our secret email chains. Uh, I've always said that it's a Chicago way takedown, just like City Hall, where you take some stuff that's not true and you throw it against the wall and you use cops to carry it through so the reporters will pick it up and destroy your opponent. 
If we ignore this, if we're allowed to ignore it as a people, what happens to us, Charles Lipson? What happens to the country? Well, we already see what's happening. Um, and uh, we, what we see is a kind of continuous, steady erosion of all of our public institutions. Um, and um, <laughs> you've heard me, John, say that one of my favorite uh, quotes came from a, a, a conversation I had with a, a very smart guy in, in Israel. He was a lawyer. He came home one day to find his two young daughters were fighting, and he asked uh, the older one who started all of this, what happened? And she said, well, it all started when Shira hit me back. Nice. <laughs> I think that's the essence of American politics right now. Every, everybody can see the erosion. Everybody can see the corruption. Everybody can see the failure of the, of the Congress first and the media. But everybody thinks, oh, but that's just a response to what the other guys are doing. And then other people say, well, the, response, the best response to that is neutrality and, and hand everything over to the professionals. And in some cases, we should. I don't want my, uh, my vaccines to be invented by people who are taking first-year chemistry. Right. But I, I don't want politics to be in the hands of, quote, professionals because, A, they don't always know what they're talking about, and B, they are politicized too. Why did you seize on the Gordian knot as the central metaphor for this, uh, as, as everyone knows, or as all the literate people of the West should know before Howard Zinn cuts it out of your mind? Alexander was faced with a problem. Uh, he was offered the Gordian knot as the problem, and then no man could undo it. And so he took his sword and just sliced it in half. Right. So Right. And we saw that in, uh, wasn't it one of the early Star Wars movies? Where the guy, uh, where Harrison Ford is confronting a guy who's just flipping all of his swords around and showing uh, how, to, <laughs> how, how effective he is, and Harrison Ford just shoots him? I think that was another one of those... Um, Indiana Jones. Yes, it was Indiana Jones. Because you know, it's the same idea, isn't it? It's the same idea. Yeah, and all the all the cultural anthropologists that you've been friends with over the years at the University of Chicago are men of and women of action, who who are just like that. (laughs) Well, you know, Indiana Jones. I'm sorry to take us off on uh, down that rabbit hole. Indiana Jones was based on a real University of Chicago anthropologist. Really. uh, yes, absolutely. A rather uh, tweety fellow. Well, he was one of the people who we have a, a wonderful free museum at the University for Chicago. The listeners should know about it. Uh, called the Oriental Institute back when the Orient meant the Middle East, and yes. that was initially put together by the guy who discovered all many of those artifacts, and he was the model for Indiana Jones. Let's go back to your point about the Gordian Knot. Please. You made two points, and I want to uh, just briefly touch on both. The first is that we, as the inheritors of Western civilization, are being denied our birthright if we don't learn all of these great metaphors, the key things. I find that every time I go through a European museum, that my lack of knowledge of all the Christian iconography means that I don't understand 
some of what's in the paintings. Well, that's true of our life in general, right? Yes. And then yes, the second is. thing was I was trying to say something about the current investigation, which is that it is completely legitimate that voters and citizens want to know what happened. And that's especially so because one of the people running for president was the second highest ranking official in the administration that did all these awful things. And then that's one logic, the logic of openness about elections. You're speaking about the meeting at you're speaking about the meeting at the Oval Office January fifth meeting and all the rest. By the book with Obama and Biden and all the boys. Yeah. Yeah, which book? Um, (laughs) and then the other issue is the logic of uh, secretive uh, legal investigations of criminal acts. And that's completely legitimate, too. And people have a right not to be accused in public unless they're indicted, and you only release the information if it's part of a court proceeding. And it is these two logics pulling in opposite directions uh, together with some of the uh, the delays uh, that have been deliberate caused by uh, Jeff Sessions and caused by Rod Rosenstein and caused by the Mueller group and all the all the rest. It is those two logics pulling in opposite directions that have protected uh, these secrets for now four years. If Ob- if Biden is elected, uh, he will try to make all of it disappear. Uh, and the only way to do that is to ensure that all the prosecutions are limited to low-level people and handled by politically secure people in the Justice Department who don't want it to, to go higher up. If he's elected, we'll have a Chicago whitewash. That's how it's done here. That's how it's, it'll be done in Washington. But uh, if he's not elected, then I guess we'll finally find out if we should build a monument of love and fealty to President Obama, a huge museum to his greatness in Chicago, right near where you are in Hyde Park. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's what happened in the end of that administration uh, really puts its entire reputation uh, at stake. And because the media that should have reported on it is so loyal to that administration, so revered President Obama and all the people around him, they have simply failed in their fundamental duty to investigate. There were two big stories over the past four years. One was the Russia collusion story, and the other was what was done uh, to target Trump and the media failed, basically failed on both. They bought the collusion story hook, line, and sinker. We know there was very little to it, and there was nothing illegal about it. They completely missed the other story, and they gave themselves uh, Pulitzer Prizes for it. Charles Lipson, my buddy and author, political scientist, professor, a man who knows things. Thanks, Charles. Thank you very much. Yeah.
www.thedanprofshow.com. Whenever I read something really outstanding, I text it to all my friends and I text it to my editors. I say, we should have this piece in our, our newspaper. We should call this guy. I text it to my kids. And I read something the other day in The Federalist by Nathaniel Blake. Brett Stevens, if Trump loses, elites can pretend he never happened. Sub-headline, our elites should have responded to Trump's election with repentance. Instead, they preen over how much better they are than that crude sinner in the White House and the voters who put him there. Nathaniel Blake is now our guest on the Dan Prof Show. Good day, sir. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. I really, truly enjoyed your piece on the, I guess, deconstructing a column by Mr. Um, Brett Stevens at the New York Times, who now is having his own issues since he dared question the 1619 Project. But I, I was I was struck with the um, your commentary with respect to the political elites, the political and journalism elites that have marginalized and humiliated and ostracized so many. Americans, more than 60 million, who supported Trump in 2016. And now, let's say Trump doesn't win. What happens to these people? Will they, will the elites just walk away and wash their hands and forget what they've done? I think that's what they would like to do. Um, I think some may want to try even take revenge, but I think for the most part, they will simply pretend it was a weird aberration and it won't happen again. They'll feel vindicated that Trump lost his reelection bid. And they'll simply ignore the issues and the voters who helped Trump first capture the Republican primary and then helped him beat Hillary Clinton. And my expectation is that if that happens, what we will see is not that these issues will go away, not that right-wing populism will go away, but instead that the cause will be taken up by somebody perhaps more competent in messaging and more disciplined in messaging than our than Donald Trump, and that it will actually become more effective if they simply ignore and write off this large segment of the American public. What has struck me, and one of the reasons why I don't criticize Trump as much as I should, is because I see every day that his voters are demonized, mocked, spat at, whether it's uh, gullible rubes or whatever CNN calls them and the basket of deplorables and so forth. And I wonder if you marginalize millions and millions of Americans, these, these managers of culture, what do they think they're accomplishing by doing that rather than addressing the issues as perhaps legitimate beliefs of these people. What is the outcome? I think, they, I think they honestly believe that they are fighting evil, that they're repressing 
evil beliefs, I suppose. So let's, you mentioned Brett Stevens being in trouble at the New York Times for his critique of their 1619 project. Yes. And I will give him credit. He did a good job critiquing that. Um, but at the same time, I think that raises the question of why was he so eager to defend a political and journalistic elite that put out this mendacious, terrible history that pretends America is nothing but a racism and slavery in its history, and that's our central identity, and that is now being pushed into schools. He should have known better if he's critiquing that from his own newspaper to get on his moral high horse and start preening about how much better he and his colleagues and his readers are. But I think we can take from his critique that people in this journalistic elite world, political elite world, believe they really do need an evil to fight against. And they think we are that evil, that we're all racist bigots, we're anti-gay bigots, uh, you know, whatever it is, the same things they're going to be saying about Judge Barrett. Right do they now, do they really the process. we're speaking with Nathaniel Blake wrote a great piece of the uh, in the Federalist on if Trump loses elites can pretend he's never he never happened and we're going to explore more of the uh, article when we come back after the break but I guess Mr. Blake these journalists and I'm part of it right I'm a columnist and an editorial board writer. They must believe that they can find virtue in politics. Eh? We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. John Cass of the Chicago Tribune, columnist at the Tribune, member of its editorial board, and host of the favorite podcast that you probably never heard of, the Chicago Way podcast. We're speaking to, to Nathaniel Blake, who wrote a fantastic piece in The Federalist on the elites and their attitudes towards the people. Mr. Blake, at the break, I asked you if these journalists who basically loathe the unwashed, as if they were at Versailles centuries ago. Do they think that they can find virtue among politicians? I think that there is a tendency, if you abandon, say, traditional religious belief or traditional notions of virtue, to start looking for virtue in politics, where you believe that the way to a better world, a good world, is through politics rather than, as most of us would say, if we're more traditional in our beliefs, through the hard work of moral improvement personally, uh, repentance for our sins, and trying to become better people, better husbands, better wives, better fathers, better mothers, and so on, better members of our communities. Instead, there's this sort of transformational longing for a politics that will short-circuit all that hard personal work. And instead, you just believe in the right thing and implement the right political program, and that becomes a substitute for virtue. And hence, then you virtue signal, right? You get on your Twitter feed and you shout to others about how virtuous you are and how, how what? What's the opposite of virtue? How craven 
how terrible, how morally repugnant your opponents are. The question, though, a culture, a, culture, a group of cultural elites, and by this I mean the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, PBS, all these people, uh, the Washington Establishment Beltway that serves as the palace guards for the Kamalists inside the Versailles of uh, Washington. What are they doing about the future? If you marginalize and, mod- and mock and humiliate tens of millions of Americans on legitimate issues, what are you setting up but bloodshed or chaos or pain? I think that sums it up that they think that they can simply win. I think that their framework is the civil rights movement. And unfortunately, if that's your only framework, you miss how other issues may not fall into that paradigm of we win, they lose, and they just go away. They slink off. And by focusing on that as their example of everything, it sometimes seems, they're ignoring the many other instances where marginalizing a large group of voters, ignoring their concerns, only intensifies conflict, as you know, perhaps that bloodshed. Someone was just shot in Denver this weekend. Yes, a Trump supporter shot. Right. Yeah. I don't think that the cultural elite really want to deal with this. They don't want to deal with the effect of what they're doing. But I see it. I see it in the highbrow, among the highbrow cultural elite. And I also see it among the witless pundits who just parrot, you know, uh, if you're a Republican, you're a Nazi or some nonsense, stupid nonsense like that. But it's all, it all gets us to the same place. 60, 70 million Americans told that they don't belong, told that their views are not worthy of discussion, told that they themselves are subhuman creatures. And what happens when you define someone as subhuman? I guess you could do anything to them, right? Generally, yes. And that's very unfortunate because I've lived among these people most of my life. It's good people. To, I mean, it's cliched, but literally, the little league coaches I had growing up, these are good people. The people I went to church with, they are, you know, by the standards of this life, they are good people doing their best, and they're dismissed and derided because of whom they vote for. So then that tells us something about the cultural elites themselves, doesn't it? As you said, um, they seek virtue in politics, but they also do it by demeaning those with whom they disagree, as if writing on them, mocking them. All you have to do is read the New York Times or Vanity Fair or any of these publications. Mocking them makes you what? More virtuous. I still, I still can't, I see, all I see is pain coming out of that kind of thinking. They're not thinking about how do we rule, how do we run things, how do we uh, bring the country together. They talk about bringing the country together while they're mocking that little league coach or that stay-at-home mom or that poor person that, just trying to survive and go to work, wear a red Trump hat, and they get away with it. Um, it's unfortunate, and I think you're right. They don't necessarily have a plan 
for how to govern. If the New York Times wants to be the paper of record for the entire nation as it aspires to be, it can't put down 60-odd million voters, and yet it does routinely. I noticed that in, in part of your excellent piece in The Federalist that you talked about um, by dismissing these concerns of many of Americans, uh, First Amendment concerns against cancel culture, uh, Second Amendment issues, on and on and on, religious freedom, First Amendment, that what you're going to end up with is if you dismiss it and pretend it didn't happen, you'll end up with someone else who may be slicker and more disciplined. Mm -hmm. That, to me, can be concerning, right? Especially if they pack the Supreme Court and have 12 or 14 members and then another populist from the right comes in. Yes. I mean, you would hope that uh, the next populist, whether it's someone like Josh Hawley, my senator here, or whatever version of Marco Rubio we're on, or Tom Cotton or whomever who has taken a bit of a populist tech, you'd hope they'd be better. But it could also be somebody worse, but more effective, more efficient. Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor for the Federalist magazine. I recommend it highly. Follow him and also look for the column, If Trump Loses, Elites Can Pretend He Never Happened, to see what will happen to your culture in your country and the republic. Mr. Blake, thank you for being here. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. This is John Cass filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. I read a column in the Chicago Tribune. I do a podcast called The Chicago Way. Look it up. I've always wanted to explain to people why. I had so much, I don't know, was it anger with Obama? I did, it's not that I disliked him. I just couldn't stand the media and how they treated him. And now I see, as uh, Charles Lipson tells us, you know, the media should have reported on what happened with the Obamagate, but they didn't. They didn't want to get into it. They won Pulitzer Prizes, and they don't want to reexamine what they did, and how they carried water for the state, for the intelligence community, and the takedown of the president. And I think it's because they loved Obama so much. They're afraid. They want to protect him, even now. And this is what I've always felt about the media, and I'm a part of it, is that they loved Obama as if he were Mr. Tumnus, the gentle forest fawn in the Chronicles of Narnia. And they treated him that way. The Beltway media treated them exactly like that, like they were having cakes and tea and they wanted hugs. I'm sorry, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Tumnus. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Tumnus. I'm Lisa Pevensey. Oh, you shake it. Um, why? <laughs> I, I don't know. People do it when they meet each other. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> well then, Lucy Pevensey from the shining city of Wardrobe in the wondrous land of Spare Oom, how would it be if you came and had tea with me? And they had tea. They had tea from the beginning of that speech in Boston. You know, the no blue state or purple states or whatever, let's stop the division or whatever it was that Obama said. And they had it all the way through his administration to, you know, tell tell Putin that I'll have more freedom after the election, Benghazi, all of it. And then came that meeting in the White House at the end of the Obama administration. Obama himself, Joe Biden, the intelligence bosses. It was a takedown of Donald Trump, and they were perverting intelligence community and the power that they had against the political opponent. And we don't care. And the media is not carrying it through. They're not reporting it because to do so would mean to examine their own culpability in carrying the mythology of Mr. Tumnus and the media and tea and cakes. And now we're going to have a banana republic and you take down a president. And you don't even examine what happened because you don't want to give up your Pulitzers. It's all happening now. You've got two or three weeks, three weeks, I think, till November 3rd. This is John Cass filling in for Dan Proft on The Dan Proft Show. Talk to you again next time. This is The Dan Proft Show.